morning, everyone. So I'm Emma. I'm Emma Hazard. I'm the digital editor at City AM, and I'm the person who's had both the privilege and the bad luck of putting together this list because on one hand, I'm incredibly inspired by every single woman that I've written about and spoken about. On the other hand, when you're writing about 15 people with Harvard MBAs in one day, it can make you feel a little bit inadequate. We're, we're in one Lombard Street here. We're in the heart of the city, and I'm sitting with some of the women that we're celebrating today. I'll let them introduce themselves, I suppose. I'll start with Jean. Okay, thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Jean Stevens, I'm the CEO of RSM International. We're a, a global network of accounting firms, so audit tax uh, consulting firms around the world. We're in 120 countries. I, I travel about 70% of my time, so I'm, I'm very happy to be here in London today with you. So thank you. And it's a nice day. Yeah, it's a lovely yeah. day. Lovely. Uh, um, and Jane? Hello everyone, I'm Jane Angardia, I'm the CEO of Virgin Money. I don't have a Harvard MBA, so, <laughs> um, uh, but I uh, have been privileged to have been one of the first people to set up Virgin Financial Services 21 years ago, I can't believe it, but we probably have to have a party for that actually. Um, and uh, five years ago nearly we bought uh, Northern Rock after the financial crisis and uh, were able to create Virgin Money as one of the um, uh, badly named challenger banks, I think all of the challenger banks would agree. Uh, <laughs> and we're having a lot of fun and uh, trying to change the world a little bit on the way. Okay, Natalie. Good morning, my name is Natalie Campbell and I'm the founder of a very good company. Um, we focus on, I guess, the mix between corporate social responsibility, social innovation and sustainability, primarily working with corporates, so M&S and Virgin Media are my clients, worked for Virgin for a long time. Um, in addition to that, I also sit on the board of the Big Lottery Fund, which is uh, an organisation that provides grants to charities. So we have an endowment or we have funding of £850 million a year. All of that is given to uh, social uh, good. I also sit on the board of Unlimited, which is the foundation for social entrepreneurs. And again, we give grants to social entrepreneurs. Um, and I also sit on the board of, or sat on the board of an organisation called Wire Unlimited, which is all about tech for good. So I have a broad kind of interest in technology, community investment, social innovation, and hopefully trying to, to change the world and, and get business to think differently about the role that they play. And Caroline. Um, hi, I'm Caroline Makepeace. I'm Chief of Staff at Tech City UK. So we're an independent government-backed organisation that's uh, intending to uh, accelerate the growth of the digital sector in the UK. Um, but as I was saying uh, to some of my panellists earlier, I'm a bit of an imposter in the tech sector because my background is central government, um, way beside me. So, uh, so a bit of a blended background. Okay, so um, I, I wanted to kick off with a, a question that's kind of current affairs. And I want to start with you, Natalie, because I know you're a heels wearer. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Hashtag Heelsgate. I thought I knew you. I thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, what, what does this mean? Is it kind of symbolic or something endemic in the system? Are we still working in the 1970s or should we just not worry? It's a one off. So I really struggle. And I know this is being podcasted, so I'm, I'm going to think very carefully about what I say here. <laughs> uh, okay, so I had, um, I, ha I had a piece in Cosmo uh, a couple of months ago that said, wear, and the headline was Wear Good Shoes. And I have a, a thing with shoes. Uh, and today I have my Louboutins in my bag and decided not to put them on because the flats were just more comfortable. But so I'm someone that likes a heel. Uh, 
I don't think it's right for organisations to have a policy around what you should and shouldn't wear, but I do feel like if you work in an organisation and there's an element of what looks professional, you should work towards that. I have a vehement disdain for ballet pumps. I apologise if anyone is wearing ballet pumps, but for me, they are pieces of fabric wrapped around a foot. I hate them. Um, and I have been known to, if someone's coming in for an interview, not for me, but possibly for clients, say, bad shoes, bad shoes, bad shoes. So I really, no, I, I really, really struggle because I, I do, I do think you should present yourself in a in a certain way, and there are some forms of dress that are appropriate or not. Um, it, it's a it, it's a really, really, really hard one, but I'm a I'm a wear the heels kind of girl. Now I can be, I could can I jump in? Yeah, you're a tall lady. Exactly. So you see, <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. Now. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, if, and if I may. Of course. Because, and, you know, working for Virgin, as you'll know, um, Richard Branson has always been very keen that people just don't worry about what they look like, come to work, do a brilliant job. And uh, years ago, after we bought Northern Rock, we had uh, the Times reported it as Jeansgate, because I'd actually said to everybody in this bigger organisation, I don't want you to come to work in jeans. Because what we'd found is that people actually turned up as if they were sort of coming in from the garden rather than getting yeah. ready for, to be professional. So I completely agree with that. But within that sort of context, surely people have to wear what they're comfortable with. As a not very elegant six foot two woman, right? I want the flattest shoes that I can possibly wear. <laughs> which ballet pumps um, are? Which ballet pumps yeah. are? And um, and I just think that I mean, we, uh, I'll shut up in a minute. But mm. I there was a guy that used to run my office who's an ex-soldier, and uh, he absolutely judges people by their shoes, right? And one, and one of my, I will say this even though it's a podcast, one of my board of directors quite clearly isn't very good at his shoes. And Ross had taken a photograph of this guy's shoes and said this is a dodgy director because his shoes are awful. And uh, of course, the, the reality I think is for me, I agree that we should look professional, but I do think substance comes from inside, not from outside. No, I definitely agree with that. Definitely agree. Jean, do you think this is, this is symbolic of some kind of problem in the city? Well, my question with that is are, are we consistent with the men? I think that's what. Um, and I and I think we as as women have a responsibility to monitor that to make sure we're trying to be consistent with that because would you and, and not so much or men I know that was in the in the press so would would what Nicola said would would you ask a man to wear heels that's what I'm going to talk about but would you judge a man by by the shoes you know that they're not as polished as they should be or or they're you know brown when really it would have looked better had he had he had black robes on with that suit. And we wouldn't have that conversation. Um, we we might amongst ourselves, yeah, but we wouldn't in polite. Yeah, we wouldn't in polite <laughs> company. So so that's always my question. I think we have a responsibility to to watch that and watch that language. Yeah. I'm, so I I'm kind of in between both because I think in a professional environment um, with with us and in as professional service firms, the how we dress I think carries over into how you behave during the day. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in that also. Um, but I'm, I'm always looking at the equality of it all. One of my friends pointed out on Sunday that the tie is also a form of oppression. What do you yeah. think, Caroline? Yeah. Well, thankfully, I've never had to wear one, so I um, <laughs> haven't been oppressed in that respect. I mean, I, I agree with the point to be made that it's about um, smartness isn't always about the shoes that you're wearing, the suit that you're wearing. Um, it's about what's inside and what you're saying. So there has to be substance to back it up. I believe in smartness in order to drive professionalism. I suppose, yeah, there's a, 
the accepted way that a man can look smart in today's society is wearing a tie in many industries. But I, I mean, in the tech sector, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, also in the tech sector, I suppose people rock up to work wearing a hoodie and smartness perhaps has a slightly different um, meaning. Um, is it a form of repression? Well, I think I'll let the men figure that one out for themselves <laughs> and worry about that. In the meantime, I'm just going to wear whatever shoes I damn well want to, I think. Yeah. But I just think on, on that point, though, thinking about men, I was doing some work in a school where the dress code was men should have to wear blazers. Um, they can only take their blazer off on a hot day because the students have to wear blazers. Um, and women don't. Women have the option of uh, dress, suit, they can wear what they want. And I mm, came mm, in in a mm. hot pink blazer and, and stripes and heels. Um, so I think where there are policies around professional dress, usually you see that it's for everyone. Yes. Um, I do think that if there is a fundamental issue where a woman is targeted and told to wear something because a specific person says, you should do this, or I just feel that this is better. But it's a, I find it really tricky when you're looking at professionalism and then also mixing in the, the general debate. Yeah, see, I feel bad now because I do wear jeans to the office often. In fact, wear jeans Okay. So, wear what you damn well want. I like that. Um, well, being who you damn well are, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I think agree. clothes are completely irrelevant. Yes. Although, in fairness, it has taken me to get quite old to do it because I do think there's pressure, particularly when you're younger, to conform to what seems to be a norm in order to fit in. And actually, in the end, I'd rather have people that are prepared to change and be different and drive change than people that fit into a perceived box. But I think you have to have a certain level of confidence to do that. But I think be who you damn well are is the important thing for me. <laughs> well, I feel catchphrase for the podcast there. Um, OK, so moving on. One thing that I was thinking about when I was putting together this list was do we still need lists like this? If, you know, do we still need to celebrate women for their achievements or are women just achieving and we should just get on with achieving and being who we are? Do you think it's important to still do this? Jane, start with you. You have a look on your face. Well, it was a, it was a, a thoughtful look. I mean, I think, I think that um, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of lists. Helen and I were earlier talking about role models and the importance of role models. Yeah. And I do think that that's important in our society, and particularly in all sorts of ways, actually, whether that's to do with the diversity agenda, the gender agenda, as it were. Um, I was talking to somebody recently about, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sort of Muslim um, society. You know, it's important to have female role models there too. And so, uh, however it is that we get to a place where other women see that they can achieve. I think that's the important thing. So perhaps my rambling answer is, I don't think the lists are important for their own sake, but I think that, again, having, see, I've got old by surprise, right? I'm 54, I can't believe I'm 54. In my, in my head, I'm still, oh, 24 or something. And so uh, some time ago, somebody said to me, you want to start joining all of these women's networks, which I never had done. And I said, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. Why would I do that? And he said to me, well, it's because You've now got enough experience to be a role model. I thought, surely not. How can I possibly be doing that? Um, and uh, as I say, I think it feels slightly awkward for me as an individual. But I do think well, my daughter's only 13, and I do think that for you know younger girls and women today to see that actually, whether you wear nice shoes or not, because I'd love to be able to do that, um, and whether you're a bit you know eccentric or not, 
Um, you can still achieve what you want to, and there are other people that have done that, and that's why I think it's probably important. And what about you, Jean? Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I think the, the always celebrating success is good. Yeah. Um, whether it's male, female, but I, I, in my career anyway, I found as as much support from the men um, as the women. Yeah. In, in terms of um, of terms of role models, so I, I I think I have mixed. I think always celebrating success, celebrating difference. Yeah. I think it's good, yeah. and wherever we can do that, I think it's great. If we had a male only, this is where I always go awry though. Is if we had a male only list. Yeah. Everyone in this room would be up, well, almost everyone, <laughs> would be up in arms Yeah. of saying how outrageous that is. Or if we just had, you know, just a Muslim, you know, only list. Yeah. And that's where then I think, well, I don't know. But it's always good to celebrate success. And we still have a long way to go with regard to, um, to just the, the, the gender issue, let alone all the other diversity issues that we have to face. Yeah. It's interesting because when I was putting together this list, one thing that I did was tweet, can I have some recommendations for female economists? Because they're not always that easy to find. And we've, we did an economist list, and there weren't very many women on it, and there are a lot of complaints about it. So I just thought, you know, I'll ask Twitter. They can, there's one. Uh, they can recommend to me who, who I should put on. And um, one very vocal Twitter economist asked me why I was doing a female only list and I was kind of trying to make jokes to basically make him not troll me and, um, and it, you know he was, he was saying why, why can't we just celebrate all economists and part of me thought well we probably could but would, would you find that the women would be muscled out? So, well, but two quite famous economists, Julia are Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde. Of course, they yeah. have been muscled out. Yeah. So, yeah. it's true. And they're not on my list. They're not yeah. on your list. <laughs> the other side of this, again, I, I struggle with, um, with with the list, but I, I think for a long time we, we have had men only awards because the only people that are nominated yeah. are men. Yeah. Mm. Um, so in order to bring other women through and to have a conversation like this in a room like this, we need lists and we need we need power lists. Um, I think where we want to get to is that when people, when judges or organisations are doing shortlists, they're looking at diversity across the board, they're using a different criteria to bring more people through so that there are role models for younger girls coming through, there are role models for women in business. I meet lots of friends that are, that are coming up through the ranks or, or younger women and they say, I don't see many women in this organisation leading. So if they don't see it, how do they know they can do it? So it takes other industries, maybe, to, to shine a light to say, there are women coming through, there are women, women being what I call badass, leading and doing it well. Um, and once we get to a place where shortlists and the people actually then winning awards are, are balanced, we can set back from doing it. But until then, lists are the way. Yeah, and I think there is a real risk that we can start going backwards. The idea of... Um, promoting equality and getting to an equal position where everyone has equal opportunities and that's regardless of, yes it's gender but it's also ethnicity and it's religious background. Equality and diversity should be much broader than just about gender. But I think there is a real risk that we give these sorts of issues one big push and then we just assume that it's all fixed. I mean, look at the public sector for example, traditionally a really strong place for gender equality, very flexible working. Um, it, the civil service prides itself on being able to welcome back women after they've had children, being able to create working conditions.
conditions that will work for them. If you look at the very senior top, uh, level of the civil service, permanent secretaries, heads of department, there are only two female permanent secretaries at the moment out of a total of 12. And that's actually gone backwards. There used to be four, five. Um, and you know, it might just be chance that there aren't the right sort of women with the right sort of skill set in the pipeline. But I think there is a real risk that we've you know, found the best women and we've used, you know, used them, if you like, there will be a better phrase for that, you know, put them into top roles and you know, they've done the figureheading and that's great. And now we've we'll, we'll done that, we can forget about it. But you really need to worry about the pipeline that's coming through so that yeah, younger people are being inspired and the girls at school don't feel that there's any, there's nothing holding them back from doing any sort of progression other than their own ambition and their own interests. So I, I want to do a bit of an experiment, an, an interactive section, if you will, while you're all eating, so it's nice and practical. <laughs> who here, hands raised, who here is in favour of boardroom quotas? No one. I am. You are. One person at the back there, <coughs> Sophie. So that's, that's two and a half people. Go on. Not, not forever, just as a Same with me. Okay. So I, I was quite interested to read um, your um, report that you did where you found that women in their 50s or over 50 were more in favour of boardroom quotas than any other. Why is that? I think it, well, it's definitely because, um, and funnily enough, I mentioned Christine Lagarde, she, she made the quote that made us think about this, which was, uh, what, what tends to happen is that in you know, the beginnings of our careers as women in business, women say, and I definitely was like this, I don't want positive discrimination. Yeah. I'm perfectly capable of fighting my own battles, being successful in my own right. Please don't interfere because I can do it on my own. Mm. And then um, as you sort of progress through, uh, those of us that do, um, you sort of realise that actually you're starting to become part of a smaller group of women. And then what Christine Lagarde said was, as I, I think she turned 60 or something, as I turned 60, I looked around and realised, you know what, we have got to do something about this because all of us that started off as, you know, fighting the good fight in our 20s, there's not very many of us that have got no. through 30 or 40 years later. So we have to do something for women to make sure that we're yeah. going to change this for good. And some people say that's quotas. Now, I haven't said that's quotas. I've, I've said that I've, I think, or the report says, that we think that every organisation should have a strategy to advance women, should make it public and then be prepared to publicly report against it. And the idea there is, you know, frankly, if organisations say, well, we only want uh, two out of 12 of our permanent secretaries to be women, they should publicly say so and then be ready for the consequences. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's right that we should say six of them have to be women because actually then you get to a place where people fight against it, I think. So the intention really is create a business strategy in the way we try and drive great quality businesses and be prepared to be responsible for it, measured against it, and in the end remunerated for it. Because in the end, what all of the analysis shows is that organisations that have good gender balance produce better return on equity. So it should be yeah. good for everyone to do that. Yeah, I'm quite. Um, I came out early, um, saying that I was in in favor of quotas and and um, like like the women on that table, at, as a temporary means to drive change. And um, and I will admit I'm the oldest one on this panel. Um, and when I graduated uh, from from university, we were talking about this issue, and we're still talking about this issue. And Absolutely. and I think we have to face it. We have to face it's not going to change. Isn't going to happen unless it's mandated at this stage. Um, it's just not. We would have done it before if we were going to. Companies would have done it before. The research was out there before. 
and it's really now quite boring. And I and I also agree. I think right now we risk going backwards. When I talk to my niece, I don't I don't have children, but I talk to my niece and 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 young women going into the working. They don't even want to talk about these issues, so they're not going to be carrying the flag like we did. They're, they don't want that. They want a different dialogue. They want a, a different experience with their work work life um, than, than we did. So I think not only do we risk, I think we are going backwards um, in the fight, and I think um, that on its own um, warrants quotas to force companies to change, and they won't do it on their own. It's great to have lofty goals, but it's, it's always the bottom line, always. And, and until you have that, it's not going to change. I'm just passionate about this. No, so. I, I, well, I mean, you know, the, the Christine Lagarde of this world, why is she there and others have left? What makes them... Why, why is she left? <laughs> what quality is it that she has? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. For me, you know, I just kind of followed my journey always with, with life and and what I wanted to do, and I, I came, you can hear my accent is, is American. I, I always wanted to live abroad, so I came to this great city. Um, and it's the greatest city in the world. I've, I've traveled all over, and I, it's <laughs> absolutely the greatest city in the world. Um, and so I'm, I feel very blessed and fortunate. So for me, it's I just kind of did my thing. Mm -hmm. I just did my thing. So I don't know, and I think I was just born the way I was, and i just doing it. So I can't, Sometimes people say, oh, you know, you've achieved so much. Do you reflect on how wonderful that is? It's like, not really. I'm just kind of <laughs> doing my thing. I've always just done my thing. So I don't know. I'm sure I, if, if we spoke to her, I would guess she just said the same thing. She'd say, I don't know. That she wouldn't feel that special. She would just feel she's doing her thing and out there fighting. And, and then the question becomes, well, you know, and I think, I think discussions like this help because then you can nurture those qualities, whatever yeah. those qualities are. I think nurturing and highlighting those um, would, would be my suggestion, so I don't know. Not a, not a very articulate answer. But. Well, I don't know the answer for Christine Lagarde, mm -hmm. but um, I, I passionately believe that in, in the end, you have to be yourself. And you know, if yourself is um, about committing to work and working hard and standing up for what you believe in with a sense of purpose, I think that's really important, and one of the things that you know certainly came out of the report that I did was that culture is at the heart of everything, and that often women decide that the culture of an organisation that they work for, the purpose that it stands for, isn't sufficiently compelling for them to devote their lives to it. I completely get that, and I think that actually what we should be thinking about is making sure that organisations really have a clear purpose to stand behind. And you know, motivate people emotionally. I love your, you know, good business, doing good business, changing the world for good through business seems to me to be the real defining purpose. And that's worth putting everything else on hold for, I think, man, woman, or whatever you happen to be. If you if you're working for an organization where your purpose isn't clear and you've got something much more emotionally compelling to do elsewhere, then why wouldn't you do it? Um, I think that's the first thing I'd say. And then the second thing I'd say is that I was talking to Helena Morrissey actually about it, and you know, famously. Uh, has um, you know, a very large family and uh, has continued to work through it. And I said, why did you do that? And she said, well, at the end of the day, I was the main breadwinner. And I think sometimes, I am too. I, and I think sometimes that purpose is equally compelling. Yeah. So um, I think practicalities and purpose are really important. I think just to build on that, it, if we think, if we put the, the gender debate to side one, to aside one moment, if we focused on challenging business to do better across the board and for business to think differently about the role and its, its purpose in society, yeah. 
um, which starts with its people, how it treats its people, the purpose that it has, how it works within the communities it serves. So just take the city. The city should be doing more for communities in the city. It should be doing more for communities in London, but it isn't doing enough. So if business changed its way of thinking and how it operated to be a force for good, you would start to see the people that are leading those companies, the people coming through the ranks, at middle management, senior management, the profile of those people would be different. But I think we have to focus more, more of, our, of our time thinking about doing business differently to then get everything else. Flexible working is a result of thinking about doing business differently. Um, having spaces for childcare is, uh, is about thinking, is, is about doing business differently. So it's not just focusing on well, what do women need, what do parents need? Um, and I, I think if we have more of that conversation, it might spark something in the brains of men that, that lead some of these organisations. But it also gives women that are coming through in their own organisations something to champion because you can c connect doing business for good back to the bottom line. And that's what sure. works for most people. Um, Connecting it back to the bottom line, and I say that unashamedly. Productivity, bo bottom line, um, and use that as, as the kind of the, the stick. On the quotas point, um, I'm not anti or for, again, it's a really difficult one, but I've spoken to women in Denmark, and what they have said is the result of having quotas, you have the same women appearing on board. So you have yeah. the, the, the yeah, number, yeah. but it's the same women. Yeah. So what we need to do is think about there's lots of talent in this room. There's lots of talent all over the UK. So if you decide to, if, if we ever went down that route, it's then making sure that we have a diverse enough pool to draw from. And there's some serious headhunting and recruitment to make sure it's yeah. not the usual suspect. I think companies need to look harder yeah. at finding the talent, because I think to ta the talent is there. Yes. Yeah, and, and looking at yeah. what's not attracting the talent at the moment. And yeah. I think. It, Kind of underlying what you're saying is it's, it's all around unconscious bias and what is it around mm. your business practices and your recruitment practices that's yeah. turning some people on or off and it's as you say it's not just about gender it's about diversity overall so it's I'm not quite sure how we get companies every company to be thinking about unconscious bias and and how their company is structured but it is something they need to you know, kind of look around you know so we work in a co-working space in the, in, uh, in the edge of the original tech city in Shoreditch um, and you look at some of the companies in there and they're very small and they're predominantly male. So the team next to us, 10 guys, lovely men. You know, love to have a drink with them in the pub, but I want to work with them. I mean, I look at the culture of that team and it's very, it's quite laddy. Um, I think I'm, it's not really for me. I can, they had a woman working with them maybe for two weeks, I think, um, and she left. She didn't really fit in, she didn't really fit the culture. And I absolutely understand the importance of culture in recruitment. Yeah. Teams need to be able to work together. But if part of that culture is driven by gender or any other you know, singular factor that's going to prevent diversity in the long run, that company needs to be thinking about it now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are only 10 people now, but at some point they're going to scale. Soon there'll be 50 people, then there'll be 100. And that's the point at which they really need to worry because they've built themselves a business model that isn't diverse. And as you say, that'll hit their bottom line. I'm not sure what the solution is, but I think that's the problem. Do you, I mean, is there a worry that... We're just, I'm, we as in women, are just as bad as men at that. So if anybody listened to um, Desert Island Discs mm. this week with Inga Beale, the CEO of Lloyds of London, um, she was talking about, she used to run a team in the city at, I can't remember which company, um, and she, she hired a load of women. And um, one of her colleagues from another team came down and said, oh, I drew the short straw, I had to come and see the Spice Girls today. And it's because she was running a team of women. She realised, God, you know, I unconsciously 
hired five women, and now we look like the Spice Girls. Um, <laughs> are we segregating ourselves by doing that? However, subconsciously. Yeah, I think unconscious bias works both ways. We, we all need to be aware of it, both the people hiring, those who are applying, men, women, fish, animal, I mean, whoever, everyone needs to be aware of it. I'm going to put my hand up now and say a very good company for the time that we've been running has been predominantly female. We've only ever had one man in the team at any one time. And you, I, I do notice it, but then I also think that it's part of how we brand and market ourselves. If we're talking about business as a force for good and feel good, do good, live better, it, in my mind when we first started, it didn't instinctively appeal to that many men. It was usually men that were looking at a career transition from one industry into sustainability or, or CSR. Um, so I'm guilty of doing that. Okay, so let's move on then. Who is it up to? Who is it up to to make sure that women are getting to the top? Is it up to us? Is it up to the government? Is it up to our bosses? Who's, who's, who should we be lobbying? Oh, well, we talked about quotas, so I think, um, you know, my answer, my easy answer to that is I think it's everyone. Um, I, think the, I, I think there's a lot of merit um, to what Sheryl Sandberg said about leaning in, and I think that women need to have, have that dialogue. I always, always, um, as I'm talking to young women, I tell them, you know, that companies want to retain good people. So as you come up to um, needing a career break or a family break, you need to have that dialogue with your with your company as to what you need to make it work, because because I, I think the employer most employers want to retain good people, so they want to do that. But if they don't know and you're not having that dialogue with them, um, then they can't uh, modify it. And sometimes it's it's as as much as educating uh, the company to say, did you think about this or this is how it feels like to us, just because they haven't thought about it. So I think we make make. Um, um, and, and to have an environment, I try with my team to have that open environment where they can come and talk and say, well, we need this, and to be very, very flexible. And then I think it's the employer's responsibility to, to keep doing that. I tend to, to not say so much on government, um, but, but quotas, I think, is, uh, okay. and transparency. I think that issue was brought up. I think that's, that's um, important, though. I, I think that doesn't change, uh, drive change fast enough okay. is my issue. Yeah. Segways neatly over. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely about leadership. I don't think that's male or female. I think it's about the quality of leadership in our country and in our businesses, right? And I, from my personal experience, I, I think the government or the administration that we currently have actually is very open to equality and diversity across the board. And I've been really impressed, and actually, I've been surprised at how expansive that appears to be. They are, you know, it was HMT that asked me to do the review into women in financial services. I wouldn't have even thought about it if it hadn't been them encouraging it. So that's important. But but I personally think, and I, this is a, um, I feel slightly uncomfortable saying it and doing it, but hey. I think that um, business leaders do have a responsibility to talk about the issues that are important in the day and to address them, whether that's gender equality. And by the by, I see as many men wanting to achieve gender equality outcomes fairly and properly as I do women. I don't think this is a male-female thing. I think it's just a leadership and um, sort of emotional awareness thing. Uh, because I do see some men, and we've probably all met them, that say, hang on a second, if you promote women, does that not mean that men get a raw deal? 
which I do think is a peculiar thing to say. Um, <laughs> but I see many, I mean, there are lots of men so, I mean, uh, that have come through the city and all of the traditional routes and that are older than me have actually picked up the phone since the report to say, can you help me? What do I have to do in my organisation to sort it out? Brilliant. And I see them as really good leaders. Um, and I'm going to have to say this point now, I'm afraid. You know, I, the thing I find shocking about um, business leadership at the moment is the silence that business has around the whole EU agenda. Uh, you know, I think it's a super important part of what our future as a nation is. And for business leaders to decide that they're not going to speak about it, whether that's in or out, I think is appalling. And I'm very happy to be public on that because I do think we have a responsibility to lead and to talk about the issues, to encourage debate in everyone, not to sort of put our view to everyone. Um, but there's no point in it. It's appalling to be well paid in a position of responsibility. If you live up to that responsibility and lead, I think. But as the TAM is remaining firmly neutral on that point, I will move over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not trying to tell, argue one way or the other. But I do. Th I, I, all I'm saying is yeah. that. I, oh, actually, I am actually. I don't think you should be neutral. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to go with everyone, but if I put something out there to everyone in this room, I would say it also starts with our sons, our daughters, I yeah. don't have children yet, but I spend a huge amount of time in schools working specifically with girls. Um, and I have this, this term badass in, in, in my brain and around me at the moment, but I am teaching them to be badass. I'm teaching them to be badass through entrepreneurship. So, what does badass mean? It's just I'm not, I'm not very cool. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a sensibility of basically taking no bullshit. So you can walk up to any of the girls in, in one of the school work, schools I work in, and you can ask them about business, about industry, about what they want to do, about their own skills, and they might say, well, I don't know, but I know that I'm good at this. I know that I'm working on this. Um, I don't see failure as, as a bad thing. I see it as a learning opportunity. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, they'll ask you what you do, they'll ask you about your value proposition, they'll ask you how you make money, they'll ask you what you do for the community. They really have a sense of their own agency and you know, high levels of, of um, self-efficacy. So I would say for everyone in this room, if we're thinking about how do we change things going forward, spend some time in schools, spend some time speaking to girls, spend some time speaking to boys about the world about business, about being more entrepreneurial, about looking at opportunities and saying, well, if that route doesn't work, so in my mind, I'm teaching them how to break rules. Break the rules and figure out a, a new way. But if you want to get there, and there isn't always leadership, there might be a myriad of, of different things, but if you want to do something and you want to be a person, be that person on your own terms, and don't let anyone craft your world or your reality for you. And that's especially important when you come from lower socioeconomic groups, which for most of the young people that I work with, they do. Um, so I would say let's also think about the generations that are coming through, primary two, but 11, 12, 13 year olds, because that's when they're forming their own opinions of themselves, their bodies, who they are, how they're spoken to. And if you've got children at home, Think about how you interact with them around gender and leadership and voice and agency. Because it's, it's only then that you're saying your nieces now aren't interested in this debate. It's only then, starting with that generation, that we will change things going forward. Mm. Mm. I completely agree. Really, yeah, really good point. And particularly uh, teaching the boys as well as the girls. Mm because it's not necessarily the girls' attitudes, or not only the girls' attitudes that needs to change. I mean, I agree, I and mean, everyone has a responsibility. I think it's a cultural shift that we're looking for, and I think that means everyone has a part to play. And for, for me, I, I guess the, the point that I harp on about 
is that uh, women in the workplace, women in senior positions, in my view, have a huge responsibility to do a really good job because there aren't enough, necessarily, in lots of workplaces, there aren't enough women. It's not yet balanced. And it drives me up the wall when I see some women in senior positions acting in a way that perhaps isn't natural to them, perhaps they're just reacting against the fact they're in a male-dominated environment and that brings out their aggression or defensiveness or all sorts of unreasonable behaviour. Um, and I, that drives me up the wall because I think it just gives the rest of us a bad name. You know, whilst women are fighting to be taken seriously and to be given equal opportunities, well, let's demonstrate why it's a worthwhile investment of men's time or of society's time rather than getting up to a senior position and being a pain in the neck. Um, and I, take, I accept that's kind of a subjective view, whether or not you're a pain in the neck, but I do think there's just a, fundamentally, if you're good at your job, then you can stand your ground because no one's got a case against you. Just something to add, again, if it's a call to women in the room, there's been a huge drive around mentorship, which is great, but I prefer sort of aggressive sponsorship. So women in my network, if they say they want to get somewhere and an opportunity comes up, I send it to them. Have you applied? Okay, who do you know that's on the application panel, right? Who can I call? Because men do it all the time. Oh, my friends, such and such and such and such. Yeah. Having a coffee with another woman and sharing wisdom is all well and good but make some calls for them, send them stuff. If, you know, if it's not our, necessarily our job to bring everyone through if they don't want to be brought through, but be more aggressive with how you engage and fight and push and drive other women through your organization, but also in your network, because I think we're missing a trick there and we've just got to the point of, of mentorship being, being, being the norm. And if we want to speed things up, it needs to be a lot more aggressive. So actually, this moves really, really well into my second last question before we open it to audience. Um, so Jane Ann, I, I want to quote you from the Evening Standard in December. You said, I feel nervous when being the face, the public face of Virgin Money. And then Inga Beale in her Desert Island Discs, really good, by the way, everyone should listen to it. Um, she, she said she turned down a job, a promotion, when she was early on in her career because she thought she couldn't do it and was sent on an assertiveness for women course. Now, do women have some kind of confidence crisis? You know, what are we doing? What's going on? I, I don't know. I was, I, was, I was thinking about it as I was um, listening to the other panelists talk, and I think my experience is sometimes you have to be a pain in the neck. And, <laughs> and, and I think I, as long as, as long as in an in a organization will always um, respond to this, in my, in my experiences, as long as you're doing it for the right reason. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes I I think my colleagues would say sometimes I do communicate in a um, and probably more in the past but in an unreasonable way but that's to get heard mm -hmm. but if but if it's always for the right reason mm -hmm. and at least people if people have trust that you're trying to do it for the right reason then you can you can do that yeah. and have that uh, uh, you know because I don't know it's just my experience that sometimes you have to be loud. Have you ever felt that you've had to be louder than your male colleagues? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's not so much. I don't. I don't look at it as oh to take me seriously or something. But just just to just to be heard and stand your ground and know what you want and know they have it thought through and and say that's where I'm going to get that. That doesn't mean that that at times you're wrong and that and that you change your mind. I learn all the time every day. I love it. But I learn and somebody brings a new perspective and I say oh I didn't think about that. Okay. Yeah. But as long as you're doing it for the right reason, it's not, my experience is not so much how. It's, it's good if you can, you, can, you can finesse it through, but 
but if it's for the right reason, that's my, so I, 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 I'm not sure I had that. Though I did go on an aggressive course, and somebody told me once, that's the last thing you need. I vaguely recall saying that. So why, why would I worry about being the public face of Virgin Money? I mean, I think that... Um, sorry, sorry to take your quote. Um, I, I think it's to do with not wanting to look stupid. Yeah. If, do you know what I mean? Does anybody yeah. identify with that yeah. thought? Yeah. That actually you think, and I, and I do think that that can be a sort of oppressive view that we all take on ourselves based on our perception of what's acceptable. Right. And so um, I think taking a public stance on anything, certainly at a particular time in your career, probably quite brave because you don't know what the consequences are going to be, you don't know how people are going to react and most of us like to be liked I think, yeah. and then when you add to that the fact that when you, if you look stupid you could make your organisation look stupid it's sort of doubly yeah. worrying if you know what I mean, um, and so I think it took me quite a while to feel comfortable with being who I am publicly, if that makes sense um, but in the end, I concluded that if I'm going to have to be the public face, I have to be who I am, because it's much more stressful to, be, to pretend to be something you're not. And then people just have to take it or leave it, because yeah. I am who I am. But it took me quite a while in my own emotional maturity to get to that place, if that makes sense. So I feel comfortable with it now, but unfortunately, still, from time to time, looks stupid. <laughs> but anyway, I think that all comes to the territory, doesn't it? <laughs> I think to go back to the point about girls in schools, um, when I first started working, it's the Kensington Aldridge Academy, an amazing, amazing school um, with specialists in, in entrepreneurship. When I first started working there, I, I spent time um, going through the, the, the teaching cycle, and there was lots of research that looked at young people and how they learn and whether they're told yes or no. Um, and children from lower socioeconomic groups are told no more often than they are yes which, as you get older, changes your confidence and your sense of agency. Girls equally are told no more than they're told yes. Your sense of confidence comes from your ability to know that you can do something, try, fail, fall down, and death is not going to happen. Whereas I think, you know, when, when we're being raised, the op we think, you know, just falling down, it, it's death, you run, you pattern, all of that sort of good stuff. Um, so I, I think... You'll be a great mother. <laughs> Um, I think we, we need to think about our, our language and, and telling girls yes a lot more often before even lean in, just yes. Yes, you can do this. Yes, you can try this. Yes, this is possible. And then from there, that enables them, and I'm, I'm, saying, I'm talking about me now specifically, to think, okay, someone's told me no, but I actually heard yes. So uh, two examples. Uh, I now sit on the board of the Big Lottery Fund, and I'm leaving here to go and speak at an event there. Um, I applied to join the board three times. The first time I got to interview and I was told no. The second time I didn't even get shortlisted. And the third time I was like, these people need me. They don't know it yet, but they really do. And it was over a period of two years, but I was like, you are having me. It's not an option on your side. I've already told myself yes, so I will keep applying. Uh, and on the third time they took me. Uh, equally, there was an amazing opportunity, an amazing job that, that came up at the end of last year. And I haven't applied for a job for years, but I thought, right, I really, really want this. Um, I called up everyone I could think of that was connected to the board and said, you know, can you call someone on the board and just say something nice about me? 
Um, I knew someone that knew the recruiter. Again, he's like, you want me to give them a call? Yes. And it's that sense of being told yes enough and working in environments where doing what you need to do and forgetting all of the, the, the is, is this appropriate? Is this, is this too aggressive? Forgetting all of that and just saying, I want this because I'm going to do some good or I really believe in my talents to deliver this thing. Just really being bloody damn hard-minded about it is possibly what we need. And if other people are offended by that, then whatever. Um, but I think the, the more, more of us or more of the women in, in this room that, that come through, it will start to, to trickle down and um, we will essentially change how business operates and what it looks like. I think on the point of do women lack ambition, um, I think probably not. I think there's enough research around that suggests that's not the case as well. The business and the, business and the community did a really good study that looked at women's ambitions and why perhaps they're not getting ahead. And it seemed to suggest that it wasn't about ambition, it wasn't lack of wanting to progress or, or um, sort of reaching for more leadership positions. It's, there are other factors. And I think that's when we get back into unconscious bias and how, is the, how a business is structured, how opportunity is structured, how a recruitment process is structured. So I think it all sort of revolves around that kind of, kind of area for me. But obviously, I don't think we talk about our ambition. Or I, I think we're scared of talking about how ambitious we are with the things that we want. And it's only when you meet another woman that says, oh, I really want this thing, you feel comfortable to say, oh, yeah, me too. It, it's, it's always been a negative. And I think so actively being honest about what we want is a first step. It's interesting, though, because when I was at school, I was very vocal on the fact that I wanted to be a Spice Girl. But <laughs> as I got older, it became harder. I mean, I'm called Emma and I'm blonde, so... <laughs> um, okay, so just moving on to my last question. It's really just a one-word question. I'll start with you, Caroline. Um, in one or two words, what is the biggest barrier facing gender equality right now? Um, unconscious bias, I think. Natalie, can you come back to my... Yes. I don't think there is one. I think we just do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I'm going to say us... But I think, and now it's because I feel like I'm on a crusade, uh, <laughs> I think we just need to burn down the sky and just take what we want. Let's do it. Yeah. And no one said men there, which I guess is quite a good move. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely. Okay, definitely so, not that. It's definitely no. not that. Yeah. Uh, so I want to open, open this to questions from the floor. Does anyone have a question? Okay, it's quite common, um, not always in the workplace anymore because we have all these initiatives and things, but in our personal lives, our family and our friends, sometimes even our partners, to dismiss gender equality and sort of you sort of like, oh, so when are you having kids and when are you going to stay home? And, and I was sort of just wondering like, what your sort of response would be to people in our personal and professional lives that try and dismiss gender equality. I had a, um, a really fun drive with my dad uh, at 29, and we were sort of driving down the road, and he said, you know, I, I really think your ship sailed on this whole family and kids thing. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Dad. Yeah, and he said, you know, when, when I was your age, I had three kids by now. Um, I was like, great. So forget the fact that I'm running my own business and doing all of these amazing things. You're, you think my ship sailed. Um, and that's not typical of him, I must, I must say. Um, but I, I do think that what we need to start, start doing, and it's going back to the, the, the younger members of our, our family and, and in schools, we need to start having a different conversation. I think, you know, if, you're, if your friends just think that you should 
stop being ambitious. And there are, I have had many conversations where friends are like, you know, why, 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 do you, why do you want to be the boss? Or why do you want that role? Aren't you happy just, just being here? Or, or people that are applying for a promotion and no one in, the, in their immediate network or family is supporting them or, or championing them or saying it's a good, good idea. Or where partners equally say, well, if you take this thing, you'll be homeless. And what about me? And, you know, who's, who's going to cook the dinner? I, those sorts of uh, what I consider to be odd conversations. Um, so I think that is about you and your own sense of agency and having a different conversation with them. But equally, if we start having a, a different conversation with younger people earlier, hopefully we change how they perceive and, and view gender equality. Yeah, I would say it's, it's about having the dialogue. Um, sometimes people ask me questions and I don't even understand the question because I just can't relate to it. And I yeah. try to understand, well, what do you mean by that question? What, what's your real question? And, and really try to, try to dig deep. And we now have a balance um, in, in my team of um, male-female, but it was predominantly female. Um, and now got more, more balance in. And we have this over, over the lunch table uh, a lot of times. We, we talk about the, the, the issues, uh, male-female. And, and it, it's important, at least in our dialogue, as equal, how do the men feel about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the dialogue helps make decisions conscious and helps yeah. make point of view yeah. conscious and you know, to mm. bang on about the same point that I made before. If, it's, if the problem is unconscious bias, making, bringing, bringing mm. the issues into the foreground and actually talking about them and challenging people to think of their own points of view and thinking through why do they think what they think. Um, an entertaining conversation with a good friend of mine uh, after the 2012 Olympics and many of my female friends were celebrating the fact that there have been so many brilliant female stories out of the 2012 Olympics, so many brilliant British medals won by fantastic female athletes. And we were really excited by this, because I guess we don't get excited by women in sport very often. And Nick just didn't get it, was thoroughly disgruntled um, that we should be talking about women and why, did, why isn't it more about men? And I suppose what was entertaining about the conversation was trying to probe through as to why he thought that. And he didn't really have a, a very good argument, I suppose, sitting behind him. Um, he just never really thought about it. And I guess that was his natural bias of, well, men do sport, and that's what we should be looking at. I think um, I spoke at something this weekend, and um, one of the last questions was about work-life balance. And I, this, again, it's one of those questions that really frustrates me. And I said, there's just life. So what usually happens, I, ask, I then ask women, so what's your, what does your day look like? And they say, well, I, I take the kids to school, and then I do, you know, do a really hard job and I'm dealing with lots of different things and then I go home, well, I have to pick up the kids or, or the nanny's drop the kids off and then it's dinner time and then it's bath time and then I, I start working again. And I said, are, are you a single parent? Are you a single mum? She's like, no. I'm like, well, where, where's your husband in all of this? And there's a sort of a blank look. And I was like, well, that's your problem. And nowhere in that narrative of all of the things that you needed to do for your work-life balance, did your husband appear? But that is, it's our job to say... There are two of us. How are we sharing this? It's not possible to have a work-life balance if you're juggling the job of two people. Fair enough, if you are alone a or, or, or single parent, you need to look at something, something else. But this and it goes back to my point about saying us. We are, are we complicit in how the, how the world is treating us? Are we complicit in how our families, our, our husbands, uh, wives, people treat us? There's a, there's a lot of people talk about the kind of little Miss Perfect syndrome. That, that women and girls tend to have, which is, I want to be good at everything. I want to be really good at my job. I want to be a great mum. I want to always look really great and be a size eight and have a perfect bikini beach body ready body. And 
Is that, mm. I mean, is that a problem that we have? No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, gr- I grew out of that. <laughs> I probably had it one time, but I think with, with age, you get perspective. <laughs> Any other questions? You can't be answered. But I was just saying, I love the point about hearing yeses and, and noes, and I've got a two-year-old, and I'm very conscious of that. <laughs> oh, There's so much unconscious, no, no, no. So everyone's been very successful at the table. I'd be really interested in what made you, did you hear more yeses, or what made you get through? Was there something different or anything to learn from that? I think for me, I'm lucky in that I was brought up in more of a kinship structure. So I didn't grow up with either parent. Um, So when you have lots of adults around you, you learn pretty quickly how to get your yes. Um, Because if one says no, you just find another one that says yes. And then you say, well, auntie said yes. Um, And it it builds from there, which is why I really do think yeses are important. I don't think it matters who says yes. So if if boys, girls are at school and they're told yes, that helps if it's parents, if it's grandparents, it, 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 imaginary friend, it doesn't matter as, and, and as long as there is a yes, and that then enables them to take that step to go to the end of the garden, whatever it is. But it's really important, and I, don't, I think we underestimate how important that is. Yeah, I mean, I think my, my father actually always used to um, say to me, never give up, you can do anything that you want, So, which I remember. But I think the thing for me that honestly was a surprise uh, I hope this comes over in the way that I uh, experienced it was that um, so I, I went through my school and university in a re- very sort of traditional sort of way expected to have a very sort of traditional life then as I say I fell in love with an Indian man a thousand years ago and needed therefore a job that took us away from having to have, him having to have an arranged marriage I fell into accountancy hated it with a passion, but I just needed a job to get me where I was. I loathed it, right? Um, but I learned quite a lot about business along the way, and I hadn't really thought about me at all. And I went to work at Norwich Union, and the guy who was my boss there at the time had to do a review of everybody's career prospects. And in writing it down, he told me that he thought that I could be brilliant and be the CEO of Norwich Union. I'm like, really? <laughs> Why? And I think that, um, and as, as time's gone on and people have told me what, ahead of what I've been able to achieve that they think I can do it, if you know what I mean, it's sort of made me grow into it. And, and I wonder, slight twist on what you've said, although I agree with it, Matt, um, telling people what they can do and then creating the space for them to take that opportunity. I mean, I remember, so Ken, who runs my office in the back of the room, who's, who was at in our IR team. I remember saying to you, here's an opportunity, it's up to you if you take it. And I think if we can create opportunities for people, the ones that are brave enough to take them probably are the ones that flourish and we should do that more and more, I think. Yeah, and I completely agree. I mean, I suppose I'm from a lucky background as well. My parents always encouraged me to to do whatever I wanted. Um, I've never felt like I've been held back because I'm a woman. Um, But I think what's really helped me accelerate through some of my career has been the opportunities that I was given by male, admittedly, um, bosses who encouraged me to challenge myself and encouraged me by giving me a platform and saying, right, here's a problem, go and fix it, Um, which is it's fantastically empowering. Um, And I suppose there's part of me that feels a little bit guilty for that because if I hadn't been female, might I have been more likely to find those opportunities for myself? Should I have been leaning in further? Should I have been kind of finding those opportunities and pulling them in rather than 
just stumbling across someone offering me something and realizing, oh, well, actually, that's quite a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Great. Um, so it's, yes, and, it's, and I guess the responsibility is on the rest of us to make sure that for, for those coming through that we are offering up those opportunities and encouraging people to take chances. Yeah, I, th I think it's always when, as, as everyone was talking, I was thinking about the attitude of why not. Yes. Yeah. Cool. You know, we tend to go towards yeah. the why, and, yeah. and when we're and and now I think we're we're in positions where we need to encourage everyone to say why not? Let's yeah. do yeah. it. Let's do it. And and for everyone to have that kind of attitude and dialogue with people. Okay. Um, anyone else, Vicky? Thank you. Um, Obviously, a number of us have been quite lucky in our careers, and, and obviously the people at the table have been too. But isn't the problem, yes, there's unconscious bias and everything else, but isn't the problem also the education right at the very beginning? I mean, the truth is that uh, the people who earn the most through their lives are those who do a maths A-level. So it's the closest correlation to earnings through your life, and obviously having done accountancy, uh, you must have done maths. And maybe a number no, of I mean, did history. Oh, well, I mean, like you. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, this is the closest correlation to your earnings. And you can see that whether you go to the city or, or anywhere else. And of course, girls don't do it. So, so it's partly the role models that aren't out there, but it's also the whole education system. So, so yes, we can encourage people to do various things. All the stuff we've been talking about, we've all been discussing, and I think it's absolutely spot on. Um, but it's really starting from the beginning, it's not just the family, but it is the education system and the careers advice. I'm shocked my children getting appalling careers advice in quite expensive private schools. Uh, and, uh, and I had to say, you know, of course you can be a lawyer. Why, why do you think you could be a PR person? You know, that sort of thing to, to my daughters. Um, so so uh, how can we overcome that? I mean, that's, that for me is that it's never gonna change, really, in terms of the, of the numbers if we don't do something quite fundamental there. The, um, in the accounting profession, we have um, over over 50% um, of the classes are women. So that isn't the issue getting in, uh, at least to the to that profession. It's the retention um, and and staying and staying through through the the top. And I think think that has to do. I think the legal profession has done better than the accounting profession. Um, with regard to that, and I think that has to do with uh, the hours and the, the workflow um, issues with regard to uh, year ends and all those kind of auditing type of type of issues. Um, I think it's more, as I see it, it's more on the sciences end as opposed to to that um, the finance side. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. If anyone has one or not. Oh, okay, Antonia. Emma, you asked the panel um, why uh, their views as to why the list is relevant or is not relevant. So can I ask you why City AM are doing it? Because obviously they think it is relevant to be doing it. Yeah. Um, it essentially, you know, City AM hasn't been very vocal on the women's side of things in the past before. And we decided that we were going to put together a list. We were going to celebrate not just women in certain sectors. So there's, you know, there's women in law uh, lists, there's women in accountancy lists. Nothing brings together all the sectors and celebrates all, all the women in them. Um, and actually, what I was saying about the economist side, so Vicky wasn't here, but um, I was tweeting, I put out a tweet asking for people to recommend female economists because we have put together a female economist, or, sorry, an economist on Twitter list before, and it was based on clout score, which is basically 
bullshit. Um, <laughs> and, and we were finding that, you know, it was, the list was ending up as mainly men because there were, for some reason, and I can't explain why, the female economists on Twitter just didn't have as high clout scores and people were complaining at us. And so I was thinking, well, you know, we should do something that celebrates the female economists. And then I thought, why don't we celebrate as many different women in as many different sectors in the city as we possibly can. So that is why CTAM is doing that. Um, and hopefully it's going to go well. And the list, actually, I will take this opportunity to say, the list, Power 100, is out in tomorrow's issue of CTAM. Um, and if you want to tweet about it, I will tell you the hashtag again. It is hashtag CTAMwomen. Um, and I will end it on that note. So thank you very much to all my panellists, and thank you for, to everyone who came. Please give them a round of applause. Hey everyone, this is Sharon Waxman. I'm the founder and the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, the premier news source for daily coverage of the entertainment industry. I'm also your host of this new podcast, The Wrap Up a show that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. Each week, we'll bring you the latest news on the business of movies, TV, streaming, and tech. So be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you each week on The Wrap-Up.